Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. It is a special pleasure uh, to welcome Marvin Kalb back to the Kalb Seminar Room. <laughs> you can look at yourself up here, too, if you want. You don't look like, to me, you've aged one minute in, that, uh, in all that time. Um, Marvin Kalb, as I'm sure you know, was the founding director of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, he has had a long and di- very distinguished career as a journalist, an analyst, and someone who has taken uh, great pains to look at uh, elements of the press and the performance of the press, as well as government, uh, over a number of years. His new book is focused on the very timely and, uh, in ways, frightening history of how war effectively has been waged on the on the whim of the President of the United States as much as anything else, and certainly on the words of the President of the United States, rather than on the action as prescribed in the Constitution by, for acts of, by acts of Congress to, uh, to declare war. Marvin's new book and the topic of his uh, talk today is The Road to War, Presidential Commitments Honored and Betrayed. Uh, Marvin, we are delighted to have you with us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Alex, and thank you all for coming. Delighted for that. It's very nice to be back in this room. Um, what I would like to do is um, using three examples the U.S. relationship with South Korea, with Vietnam, and with Israel. I'd like to raise essentially two questions. And Alex has already touched on, on one of them. One of them has to do with the word commitment. And when uttered by a president of the United States, it almost becomes policy. Not really, but it moves the nation toward the acquiring of a policy when the president of the United States announces that he is committed to something happening. The other issue that I want to talk about is the war-making powers of a president. And Alex uh, used the word whim, and maybe one could argue that that is not always the case because let's assume that a president has very good reason for believing that the United States ought to go to war. There is at the same time a way in which that is supposed to happen. And what we have found since the end of World War II is that that way, which was generally accepted up until that time, is no longer the case. And it becomes increasingly not the case as we go further and further away from the experience of the Second World War. Up until that time, um, there were five occasions when the system more or less worked. And that takes us back to 1812, Uh, and the war against the British in 1846 with Mexico and 1898 with the Spanish and World War I and World War II. And in all of those cases, what would happen was that a president would go to Congress, there would be a discussion, 
The Congress would then, as the Constitution says, declare war. And then the Congress, both before and since, has always provided the money to fight a war. The Congress has never, to the best of my knowledge, said that I may not agree with this war, but I'm not going to give you the money to fight it. <coughs> even during the Vietnam War and even during the worst times of the Vietnam War, the money was provided. Since World War II, what has happened, and is, it's a sad spectacle in a way, but it's understandable also. World War II ended with the use of two nuclear weapons. And suddenly anyone with half a brain realized that we were in an entirely new environment when it came to fighting wars. We were capable of destroying cities with one bomb. And so the idea of war and the possibility of the use of a nuclear weapon was so frightening that most people in Congress just naturally pulled back, and they did not want to address that issue. They would say, let the president deal with an issue as complicated and frightening in a way as nuclear war. So that, that's sort of one reason, and that was the reason that cropped up immediately after the end of World War II. The other reason, which happened much more slowly, was the development and the rise of the Cold War. And as many of you in this room know, the Cold War, which ended in December of 1991, if we want to put it that way, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Cold War was a time when both superpowers fought for every piece of land, used every instrument at, its, at their disposal to beat out the other guy. Neither side wanted to go to war, but both sides wanted to win. And Walter Lippmann was the first to come up with the phrase Cold War, and he did it either in 46 or 7 in a very small book. Um, and he was absolutely right. And what he wrote there in a very prescient way was something that articulated the nature of the superpower collision for decades thereafter. And that collision would occur whenever there was competition for control over a particular piece of territory. <coughs> so that a president like Truman, immediately after World War II, a president like Truman, who was very, who was, um, I think he may have been the only president who did not go to college, or maybe I'm wrong on that, but he sure read a great deal of history, and he was soaked in history, and he was what would be called a hardliner. He was also somebody who did not want to see anything like World War II happen again. And he believed that the encroachments of the Soviet Union from East into Western Europe represented a direct threat 
to the security interests of the United States. And something, therefore, had to be done about that. You couldn't simply accept it. You had to go back and fight it. And it became part of the politics of the day that you had to stand up against communism and be reckoned as an anti-communist, and that would be very helpful in terms of winning an election. So people would then flaunt their credentials as an anti-communist, that they would be the first to recognize a communist plot, something like that. Harry Truman had no sense of Vietnam as a threat to the United States when he came to office. There was absolutely no reason for him to think that. And I said earlier I would be talking about Korea, Vietnam, and Israel. Vietnam is at, is at the heart of, of this book that Alex mentioned, and also um, something that has preoccupied me for a very long time. And not too long ago, I looked at a, a shelf at home where I have a bunch of my books, and at least half of them are absorbed with the issue of Vietnam because it was so much part of my life. Um, my brother did most of the reporting from Vietnam, but I did a lot of it from Washington and twice went to Vietnam. Mm. Um, but it was Bernie's war. But I wanted that piece of it that had to do with diplomacy, but there wasn't much of that. But Harry Truman, it's very interesting. He takes over in 1945. He leaves in January of 1953. In that period of eight years, seven, eight years, his attitude toward Vietnam and the attitude of the Joint Chiefs of Staff changed dramatically. At the very beginning, Vietnam was something on the far horizon of his strategic thinking. By the time he left, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were declaring Vietnam to be within the national security interests of the United States. And that phrase, national security interest, is a big one. And a lot hangs on it. And you could ask yourself the question, it's a good one, it's a simple one, how the hell did that happen? I mean, why would that be the case? What was going on in Vietnam at that time that would require that kind of designation? And it was not just the designation. We were already beginning to provide arms. Uh, I think by the time Truman left, it was more than $300 million a year of American arms to the French seeking to reimpose or at least maintain its colonial grip over Indochina. It's a lot of money, and you, you had to ask yourself why and it was under that, that idea of the Cold War, and you had to head it off. And it was also something rather concrete. Uh, the Joint Chiefs said that if the communists were to take control of Indochina, it would interfere very dramatically with our trade operations and sending ships through that part from east to west and west to east and the U.S. would no longer be in control of the operation that we wanted to be in control of all operations. 
So by the time Truman left, Vietnam, they were thinking about it, and it came into that framework of national security interest. But it wasn't really nailed down. And then Eisenhower comes in. Let me hold up for one second. I just put in as a paren, which I shouldn't, because 34,000 Americans died there. But the Korean War is a good illustration here of what I'm trying to say. The North Koreans attack June 25, 1950. What does Truman do? He had promised his colleagues in the Senate in 1945 when he took over, that if he ever had to send American troops anywhere in the world, it would only be with the approval of the Congress. Five years later, the communist attack in Korea, what does Truman do? He goes to the UN, not to Congress, to get any approval, whatever. And years later, he acknowledged, and years later, Lyndon Johnson said it was one of his greatest blunders in not having the support of the Congress when he sent troops off to fight. But he didn't. And why didn't he? Because the threat of a communist move into another piece of the free world was so large, it was perceived as such a direct threat to the United States that we had to do something about it. And so we sent eight divisions into Korea to fight. And you all know that history in close paren. When Eisenhower takes over on the Vietnam side now, he has had, in my judgment, an easy ride in, in the view of historians about what happened there. But Ike was responsible for two things without which the Vietnam War, as we understand it, could not have happened. And the first was the Geneva Conference of 1954. The U.S. was a reluctant participant, but it was a participant. It allowed the other big guys to come in with a formula for the division of Vietnam north-south along the 17th parallel. Eisenhower was not happy with that at all, but he allowed it to happen. And what he did immediately after the line was, was established, and immediately after the Geneva Conference said that within two years there had to be a vote as to what would happen in the South and the North, everybody understood that if there were an election, the communists would win. Eisenhower did not want that result, and so he put the election part aside. But what he did do within a week after the division of Vietnam was extend formal American diplomatic relations to the part of Vietnam called the Territory of Vietnam, south of the 17th parallel, and thus was South Vietnam created. It would not have happened without the support of the United States. Once the U.S. did that, the British, the French, and everybody else sort of tacked along. And South Vietnam became a member in that way of the free world. Now, those of you in this room who are old enough to remember this will remember that free world, that phrase, meant something. It wasn't just descriptive. You were part of a rather elite, non-communist, anti-communist club. And South Vietnam, being the newest member of the free world, was entitled to everything that free world nations have. 
and that's honor and security and all of that. And when uh, President Diem, uh, not the greatest guy in, in, in the world, but nevertheless the guy they selected at that time to run South Vietnam, came to the U.S. in 1957, Eisenhower, wanting to make a big point of it, went out to the airport at National Airport to greet him rather than have the ceremony at the White House because they wanted so much for everybody to understand that this free nation was our baby and we're going to protect and support it. In 1959, the second Eisenhower uh, statement that was terribly important, he did a speech at Gettysburg College, and in that speech, and this is almost a direct quote, he said, South Vietnam is in uh, South Vietnam, as a non, as an independent, non-communist nation, is in the direct national security interest of the United States. So the linkage then between the national security of the U.S. and the continued existence of a free, independent, non-communist South Vietnam were linked, and there was the equal sign between them. And when John Kennedy took over as president, the first advice he got from Eisenhower was, you have to move troops into Laos. <laughs> Kennedy, wait a minute now. And he checked with a number of his advisors, and they said things are getting very bad there, and the communists could take over. He went with what Averill Harriman recommended to him which was the neutralization of Laos. But since he was risking, neutralization means you can have some communists in there too, he was risking political strength. So we didn't want to do that. And he told his people that it will be in South Vietnam that he will make his stand. And what did he do? Two things on his side against him, really. One, he moved 16,000 advisors, as they were called, into South Vietnam to help the South Vietnamese sort of put themselves together. And the other thing he did was give permission for a coup, a military coup, against President Diem, in the course of which Diem and his brother were murdered. And when Kennedy was told about this afterward, when word got to him, he was in the middle of a meeting, and word got to him, and, and he, he turned white, said something that I can't repeat right now, and, and stormed out of the room. There was a naivete in believing in Kennedy's mind, apparently, that you can turn a coup off and on, like a spigot of hot water, that you can just turn it on, we're for it, and the next day we're against it. And these guys who were in Vietnam who were supported in their minds by the U.S., took that action. And Linda Johnson said, the blood of Vietnam is now on our hands, and it's going to be very hard to wash it away. Johnson came in to office saying, let us continue. And he very proudly stated in his memoir that his first two actions as president, First two, number one, to continue Kennedy's policy in Vietnam. 
Whatever that was, it was not clear at the time, but whatever it was, we're continuing that. And the other thing he said was, unlike Harry Truman, who took action against the communists without Congress, I will get Congress to come along with me. I remember this very carefully, Alex, because I was covering that story at the time, and the word around Washington was that Lyndon Johnson had in his pocket a text of what became the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution of August 1964. Whether he had the text in his pocket or not is not important. What is important is that there were two actions on August 2nd and August 4th. On August 2nd, the North Vietnamese PT boats actually attacked an American destroyer called the Maddox in the South China Sea in the Gulf of Tonkin. And it, they were fought off, they were defeated clearly and all, and Linda Johnson heard about this. And the first instinct, and he was in the middle then of a campaign, which for him, for the presidency, which for him was extremely important because he knew that up until that time he was president by virtue of the fact that Kennedy had been killed. It was not his presidency. And in 1964, he wanted his presidency affirmed big time. And he put a lot of time, I think as Peter does very well, he put a great deal of time into making sure that that election was going to go exactly as he wanted it to go. He wanted a big time victory over the Republican. And he began to talk about Barry Goldwater as a guy who will get us into war with the Russians and it will be terrible and you have to go with me because I'm a man of peace. And so remarkably, though he had been looking for a reason to have the resolution, he took no action because he wanted to be seen as a man of peace. Two days later, there were reports by the same captain on the Maddox, a man named Herrick, whom I interviewed. He's a very fine naval officer. And on the 4th, he sent word to McNamara saying that we're being attacked again and that I see torpedoes in the water. Four, five, six, he described. And they were coming at our ship. And it was a big storm at the time. The fact of the matter is, nothing happened on August 4th. Nothing happened. It was something where people began in Washington, including the president, to believe that this was all what Navy people call skunks, that they're um, radar sounds that bounce off steel, and you're, you're not hearing anything more than that. But they assumed that it was more than that, that it was really an attack, and it wasn't. Johnson knew that there was no attack because he, on the night that he went on television to tell the American people that the U.S. had been under attack that day, he told George Ball, the big shot at the State Department, there was no attack. He said there were a bunch of crazy kids who were saying there was an attack. Our radar guys have gone nuts, he said. But he was already determined to take action. McNamara was telling the Joint Chiefs on that night 
we are under continuous assault. There was none. But Johnson did tell the American people that we're under attack, and he went to Congress and he called 16 or 17 of the leading House and Senate Republican Democratic leaders to the White House. He told them, I need a resolution. And he told them exactly what he wanted in the resolution. And the following day, Ruskin Ball actually wrote it for the people up on the Hill who then cleared it. 416 to nothing in the House, 88 to 2 in the Senate for the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. But for Johnson, it meant that the nation was with me. The representatives of the people were with me. I'm looking at the clock and getting nervous. The, um, within a matter of six months, the U.S. was sending Marines to land at Da Nang. Within a matter of nine months, Johnson had made up his mind to go from a war where advisors with the American representatives, military representatives in South Vietnam to combat troops within a matter of two and a half years. There were 548,000 troops serving at any one time toward the end of 67, early 8. What was happening at that time also was that the nature of the casualty rates and the people who were being killed changed. <coughs> From September 67 until January 68, the number of Americans killed every week in Vietnam went from 30 to 500. When 30 of them were being killed, they were largely black and Hispanic soldiers. When the 500 were being killed, there were a lot of white middle-class people thrown in. And that is when the anti-war movement really got going big time. Richard Nixon was um, not one of my most favorite presidents, but Richard Nixon was the one who told Kissinger early on in, the, in his presidency, Henry, this war can't be won, but we cannot tell the American people that. We have to get an honorable end to this war. Um, there was an end to the war technically in January in Paris of 1973. The war continued until the end of April 1975. During the time that Richard Nixon was president, 28,000 Americans were killed in a war that the president knew was unwinnable, which is just a statement of fact to what you wish with it. Vietnam is an example to me of one president after another with increasing volume saying that the war, the challenge, the communist threat in Vietnam was such that we had to fight it and we had to win in that war. The word commitment was used to define our policy. Linda Johnson said in July of 1965, why are asked why are we in this war? He said, because President Truman committed us to be there. President Eisenhower committed us to be there. Um, President Kennedy committed us, and therefore I will not go against the word 
the commitment, the honor, the integrity of the United States. So once committed, you've got to stay with the commitment, uh, no matter how long that war uh, was to last. Now we get to this war powers idea. The war powers idea is something that I, I have to confess to you was not as crystal clear in my mind when I was writing The Road to War. It sort of evolved in my mind as I was writing it. And since the publication of the book, as I have been describing it at many uh, events in Washington and out of Washington, and it is always gratifying when um, a book that you spend a lot of your time and years working on gets some uh, discussion going, and so it was very gratifying to me as well. But at the same time, it wasn't gratifying, because what they're talking about is something that I find almost shameful. The United States of America remains, with all of its problems, a great country, and probably in my book, still the greatest country in the world. And yet we do not have, on an issue of going to war, something so central to decision-making by a president and only a president, we do not have a, a broadly accepted understanding a guideline, a formula for the way in which this country should go to war. We don't know how to do that yet. Clearly, the president as commander-in-chief has the authority to say, Alex Jones, back into the Navy with you, kid, and uh, because we've got a war to fight. <clears throat> he has that authority as commander-in-chief. But at the same time, there ought to be, there ought to be a question as to the use of that authority. And there ought to be a balance of some sort in there. And what is kind of interesting um, to me is that a, a, a week or so ago, I was listening to Justice Breyer uh, do a talk. Um, and he is, of course, uh, brilliant and at the same time humorous and and I had an occasion to ask a question, and I asked him, what is your understanding of the war powers of an American president? And he told me about how Truman acted during the steel crisis. And, and that was his way of sort of getting off answering the question. But when it was over, we had a chat, and I am not quoting him in any way directly, but I had the feeling that what he was saying to me was that if you go to war, that is a responsibility of the executive branch of government and the legislative branch of government, but not the judicial. What we do in the judicial is make a judgment on a law, on an issue that comes before us. We're not going to say that you have a right as a president to take us to war or not. I might have misread him, I don't think so. Um, but that struck me as kind of interesting, that here is a justice who could not answer that question, or did not wish to answer that question. 
And if you go back to original formulas here, the Congress has the responsibility to declare war and to provide the money. The President has the responsibility as Commander-in-Chief to order troops into battle. But we are nowhere near a formula for going to war, and I advance as a most recent example what happened with Syria and Obama uh, two months ago. I think we'll all remember that for a week prior to that fateful week end, everyone in Washington with any authority was saying, hang on kids, we're going to, the president's going to attack. It's going to be a small attack, not a big one, and everyone running around up on Capitol Hill describing what was going to happen. But the idea that the United States was going to attack was being put out front and center for all reporters to hear and all reporters to report. And it was to happen that weekend. Something was going on, and I forgot now. And then the president takes a walk with Dennis McDonough that Saturday morning and decides it is said, according to the White House story, that the president made up his own mind that he's got to have the Congress with him. He can't go ahead and do this on his own. So he asked the Congress to please give me a pat on the back and let me go off to do this. And the Congress lets him know in its way that it's not going to provide that kind of support. And then Putin, our friend, jumps into the act, and this is a story which to this day I don't really believe, but what we are told is that um, um, Kerry made a mistake in something or said something loosely when he was in London, and Lavrov, the, the Russian foreign minister, picked it up and said, what a marvelous idea. Let's get rid of all of the chemical weapons in Syria. And the Assad thought also it was a marvelous idea, and just by coincidence happened to have his foreign minister in Moscow. So everybody could agree within 24 minutes that this was the deal and this was the way to do it. I mean, if you buy that, I got a bridge for you also. But that is the story that is out there. But the effect of it is that the United States did not take military action against Syria with very severe consequences for lots of people in the Middle East, but that's a separate issue. Think ahead now to Iran. Let's assume that we get a deal with the Iranians and there is no need for the United States or Israel to take any kind of military action against Iran. Let's hope that that is the case. But anyone who's floated around the Middle East for any length of time knows that that may not be what happens. And if the United States felt, according to what the President has said 500 times, that he will never allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon, if the president has to take military action, can he take that action on his own? Does he have to have Congress with him? I don't know. I raised that as a question. But after what happened with Syria, I would think the odds are now that he will need Congress before he takes any action. Um, the idea that these questions can be discussed 
is to me almost an embarrassment. And it ought to be clearer uh, when a great power such as the United States feels it must use its strength, its military strength against an adversary, that we ought to know what the system is and how it is going to work, and we don't. So I think I had best at this point. Well, let me let me ask one quick question and then uh, uh, open it to the floor. In your opinion, the one the, when you talk about Vietnam, it rings, of course, bells with the invasion of Iraq as well. In other words, that the American people were tricked into into and the Congress, in effect, in the Vietnam case, were tricked into supporting something that uh, was, in fact, not the case, and. That is, makes the, the element of uh, a president's power to pull the United States into a war all the more terrifying. When you look at the issue of the war on terror as, this, as a sort of a, a de, an undeclared but declared war that will never have an end, I can't imagine, because it's, a, it's like a, an abstraction, do you imagine president after president after president doing what Barack Obama did with George W. Bush, even though he was against him, he immediately in, embraced his, his policies in a military sense. Who knows will come after him, but they will inherit basically a set of commitments that may or may not have been based on duplicity and that therefore the United States will be bound by comments, the next president, whoever that might be, bound by what Barack Obama said about Iran, for instance. It's a terrific question. I think it depends on what the commitment is. I'm not ducking here. I think it really depends on the commitment. If the United States were thinking about a commitment like NATO, a commitment such as we have by treaty with South Korea, I don't think there's any doubt in Washington that if South Korea were again attacked, the United States would instantly be obliged to send troops there and help out. And we have 28,000 troops there already as a kind of tripwire. So there are commitments around the world which are locked in and understood by the Congress, by the American public, um, by the President, of course. There is one commitment that is not in that category, and that's the commitment that we have to Israel. And I didn't mention Israel before because I, I was looking at the clock and it was getting it was getting late. But very quickly, the U.S. relationship with Israel is extraordinary. It is it is probably the closest relationship we have with a foreign country for a lot of obvious reasons. Um, and yet, we do not have a single piece of paper on which the ground rules of that relationship exist. That relationship exists as a result of private presidential letters sent to Israeli prime ministers and likewise private Israeli prime minister letters to the American president. There is no defense treaty, uh, which by the way I think there ought to be, but there is none. There are these commitments written in letters. Then you raise the question, the next president comes in. Will he agree 
with something that is not said to be a national commitment, but a presidential commitment. And here the Israelis get, for understandable and justifiable, in my opinion, reasons, nervous about American commitments. And that's why when you see the, the, the friction and the uneasiness between the current Israeli prime minister and the current American president, it's not just because of disagreements about Iran. This goes back to a fundamental sense of betrayal on the part of Israel in 1967 when the Israelis had a letter written by Eisenhower in 1957 saying that if the Egyptians again cut off the straits, um, I can't think of the name of the straits right now. Hormuz? No, not Hormuz. Um, The straits of Aqaba, the road, the, the seaway going up to Aqaba. If they cut off those straits again, Israel has um, a national right to move in, to assert its right, blah, 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 mm-hmm. and the United States will be there with you and help you. Th- those are my words, not the language that Eisenhower used. And so the Israelis, when that happened again in 1967, they went to Johnson, another president, and said, Mr. President, you know, we have this letter from your president. <laughs> Um, two presidents down the line and Eisenhower said and so where are you? And uh, Johnson said um, to Abba and the foreign minister at the time he said please understand I've got the great society, I've got a war in Vietnam, why don't we all go to the UN right now and discuss this? And Abba Iban said the UN? No way Um, you know that get locked up there in a lot of Palaver, it's not, it's not what I want, not what the Israelis want. And the Israelis took action on their own in 1967 and did what they felt they had to do. My point here is that without ground rules that both sides understand, there are going to be these frictions between the two countries based on a deep sense of possible betrayal. That's a harsh word, but it's not mine. I've had, um, as a reporter, many opportunities to talk to three Israeli prime ministers, uh, Golda Meir, Menachem Begin, and Yitzhak Rabin, and all three told me the same story. There is a feeling that at the end of the day, there'll be only one set of soldiers fighting for Israel, and that will be Israelis. And so they fear this kind of betrayal, and I think because of that there ought to be something written down, some kind of defense treaty. Um, uh, Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in a terribly awkward situation. Let let me invite uh, students in the room to have first crack at Marvin. If you're a student at Kennedy School and you'd like to ask a question, just indicate by raising your hand. Yes. Yes. Yes, please. Uh, but how do you in, inter, interpret the response uh, by the United States after an attack on a warship of South Korea? Is there a response? Well, the, the response I think you know very well was non-military and purely diplomatic. 
And what, obviously, the United States is not eager to fight um, another Korean War. But I think both sides understand. And I've spoken to many um, uh, diplomats and, and military people from South Korea, and they understand that the United States is there to help in the event of something resembling the June 1950 attack by the North against the South. It's not to take care of an attack on a ship. On Syria. Because he is trying desperately not to launch any military strike against anybody. He is, he came into office believing that through a combination of his own brilliance as he sees it and, and perhaps luck and changing circumstances around the world, he could turn around the impression left by Bush too. Uh, president, that the U.S. would resort easily to the use of military force to turn that image around and that the United States would not do that. And I think President Obama has tried very, very hard to avoid any use of military force anywhere in the world, um, for which he has paid a heavy price, but at the same time is a very noble, noble goal. Yes. Um, do you think that the development of technological warfare and a, a movement towards you know, an increased use of drones, for example, has an impact on exactly the dynamic that you've been describing between the president's war-making powers and, say, the potential approval of Congress? Yes. Um, what I am told by people who know much more about this than I am is that the, the U.S. military, at the most senior level today, is trying to come up with a different way of fighting wars in full recognition that the new technology may make the old way of doing it totally obsolete and wasteful in human life. And so the drones could be seen as, as an aspect of this new kind of, uh, of American strategy I don't know whether that is, in fact, the whole story or whether that is, in fact, what they're telling me, which may not be the whole story and likely isn't. Um, but I think there's something to it. Um, and you got a little bit of that at the outbreak of the Afghan war when um, Defense Secretary Rumsfeld told his people that he wanted the most limited footprint in Afghanistan possible. And they lived up to that. There were only 4,000 U.S. troops that were on the ground, working with local people who opposed the Taliban. So that was, the, it's used now as an example of the very limited use, a small footprint of American power, but a heavy reliance upon technology. And that, I think, is what they're talking about going into the future with the use of the drone, and much more as you get into cyber warfare, <clears throat> which is a whole other dimension, um, and something I cannot speak about out of pure ignorance. 
um, I think you're going to find a lot of changes there, too. Tom, I'll get you next. So, Marvin, so um, we're rewriting the Constitution. Um, <laughs> and it's going to be a lot longer than the original version, right? But, uh, so it's going to have a provision very much like the Declaration of War, right? But then there's going to be a recognition that there are times that you will have military hostilities without a declaration of war. So you'll have something like the War Powers Act. And then <coughs> if they can figure out the language, something that would allow for unilateral presidential action. Uh, and my sense of history is actually there's been a lot more a, kind of a closer relationship between Congress and the presidency on many of these things. Uh, Syria being a, the recent example, but the way that Clinton chose to fight the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo in the air, not on the ground. Uh, and then Iran-Contra, uh, Reagan's essentially going around corners to involve the U.S. in Central America. And a lot of that has to do with sort of Congress and where Congress is on these, on these issues. It, right. Yeah. Um, a lot has to do with Congress, and a lot has to do with the way that Congress sees its responsibilities. There are different ways. You can have Congress act in a formal way with the declaration of war. Congress can act in a formal way with um, a Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Congress can act as it did in December of 1990 with the first Bush on the use of sending 500,000 troops into Kuwait. Yes. And that, by the way, that particular illustration is important for, for another reason, too. Bush has said and written that he did not want to go to Congress. He was absolutely convinced that he was doing the right thing and did not need Congress to go along with him. The only reason he did go to Congress, he later said, was that his Secretary of State, Jim Baker, appealed to him to go to Congress because he would have what Lyndon Johnson had, which was a formal statement by Congress that what you're doing, Mr. President, 500,000 troops is a good thing, got our support. So we did it. Um, Senator Inouye, Democrat, Hawaii, went to see him over Christmas and told him, Mr. President, um, what happens if Congress if the Senate votes against you, what are you going to do? And he said, I would send the troops anyway. He said, you realize if you do that, there may be an impeachment move. And Bush said, then so be it. And there was a marvelous letter that he wrote to his children on New Year's Eve, a few days later, in which he spelled that out. Um, you go to Congress because you want their support, but Congress says no. Does that mean that I can't act as Commander-in-Chief any longer? Um, and does that mean that I can act in the heck with what Congress said? So there are many angles in here, and you maybe you'll set off an impeachment drive. You're absolutely right that Congress is part of it, but it almost depends on the seriousness of the congressional involvement. For example, you mentioned the, the Clinton stuff. 
When Clinton decided to bomb in the Kosovo, bomb Belgrade, the biggest issue among his close-in advisors was, let's say that we keep bombing and the, and the uh, Serbians don't yield. Milosevic won't yield. Will you send troops in? And Clinton wondered about that and didn't want to. So the question then becomes, if Congress gave him the authority to move, would he then move? Yes, no, I don't know. All I'm saying is that your, your point about Congress is an absolutely valid one. But Congress comes in many shapes and forms. And there are times when it's serious, as it was with Bush 1. The vote at that time was 52-47. Very, very close. And if a couple of votes shifted the other way, maybe we would have had a president acting, rebuffed by his Congress, and kicking off an impeachment move. Who knows, but that... Yes, down here first, and then I'll get the two of you. Yes, please. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the last decade of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars about um, the decision to go to war based on the lack of civilian leadership having military experience or having um, affiliation with the military. Um, what are your thoughts on how that's kind of changed with the um, advent of the all-volunteer military and projections yeah. into the future? It's a very, very difficult question. Um, it depends on the day of the week what my answer is going to be. I mean, at the moment, I think that in the most ideal of worlds, we would have a president who is a former general but is really a professor at heart and a philosopher in his reading habits and can come up with great wonderful decisions but that's not the way they make them and now that you have an all volunteer force which we have had since January of 1973 the likelihood that a president would also have had military experience goes down but clearly there are people in the Congress today who have that military experience from Iraq and Afghanistan um, now, whether they will end up running for president, we'll, we'll see. Um, but I don't know how to deal with it. I, I really feel that the presence of an all-volunteer force <coughs> is, is very good for a president intent on war. Because you have, you know, like uh, a European monarch of old, you have your own force. You can use it as you see fit. And these are professional people who are there to fight. That's what they joined up to do. And there's a larger question in my mind as to whether there can't be some form of national service that will include military service, but include so many other areas of activity that would be very helpful to the country, the most important of which, in my mind, is to reestablish a connection between young people in this country and the country to understand that there is uh, or should be a sense of responsibility toward your country to, to contribute. 
And there's, an, there's a lot of, of sentiment that I come upon uh, where that is foreign and shouldn't be. Nolan and then Mark. Hi, Marvin. Yes, sir. Um, if you were writing the legislation, how would you define the term to go to war? I point out that most of the members of Congress are lawyers, and lawyers in particular pay close attention to words, particularly in legislation or treaties and contracts. And would your definition include the activities of the CIA, which essentially has become like a private army for the president, or would it include uh, private contractors also? Am I writing that law? How would you define the term, to go to war? You also mentioned that uh, in each case of a police action or war, non-war, Congress has provided funding. But in the case of the Congress, of the Contras, Congress did not pa pass any uh, funding legislation, and the president undertook a secret war in any event. Well, you know, uh, Tom, you mentioned before, just picking up something Nolan is mentioning here, this business about the, the War Powers Act comes in as an example here. The War Powers Act is the result, was the result of the frustration of Congress with the Vietnam War, which they thought would never end. It was an absurd piece of legislation, but remains on the books to be ignored by one president after another without any payment to be made. You can ignore the War Powers Act, and Congress will tisk tisk, but do nothing. So that if you're going to write a law, it has to be a law that is sensible and has teeth. You cannot say to the military, you can fight for 60 days, and then if you haven't beaten the bad guys, Come back to us, and we'll give you another 30 days. And after that 90-day exercise, if you're still fighting, you're illegal. It doesn't make any sense. So how do you come up with a law that does make sense? I'm not smart enough to figure it out. We're going to go just a little bit over Mike and then Matt. What uh, credibility do you attach to the reports that maybe Jack Kennedy was uh, heading down a different road in Vietnam toward the end of his administration? There was rather specific reference in the New York Times book section this weekend to a couple of memos, one from Kennedy to McNamara, I think in June of 63, he said, get ready for drawdown, and then one from McNamara to the Joint Chiefs in October or even November of 63. Yeah, and those, those memos are absolutely uh, correct. And um, and Kennedy was saying at that time, McNamara was pushing at that time for that a beginning of a drawdown. I do not believe there is any serious evidence that Jack Kennedy would have done anything um, meaningfully different from what it is that Linda Johnson did, by which I'm putting in that qualify, because maybe he would not have sent 500,000 troops. He would have sent 250,000. John Kennedy did not want in his record that South Vietnam went, went communist while he was president. That, that is unacceptable, or was unacceptable at that time. And I, I feel that it's wonderful for people who love Kennedy to believe that he would have taken this noble action. And No, I don't think so for an instance. Yeah. Um so you've made a compelling argument about the pathologies of vague 
gray lines of, of the responsibility and authority between the uh, institutions, the Congress, and the presidency in war making. But, you know, as you know, there are pathologies on the other side, too. Um, overly clear uh, separation of responsibilities, as it does in so many areas of policies, makes action much harder. You know, war is a serious thing, and so you could say you don't want it to be launched on a whim, but, you know, stuff happens, and there are times where you do want decisive action. So it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around where, uh, you know, in terms of sort of making good policy as opposed to constitutional, that line really ought to be. Clearly, the Congress doesn't want to enforce its um, right to declare war. Um, they've had, there have been situations I can think of where if, you know, they, the president, if they had wanted to, they could have and would have had a vote. I think in Afghanistan in 2001, it would have been no problem getting a, a vote to declare war against Afghanistan. Yet, none was asked for and none was offered. So um, we don't just have an imperial presidency running Russia out of the Congress. We have a collaborative uh, uh, Congress. Now, and the ignoring of the War Powers Act, I think, is constant with that. Neither side really wants to test this. It never goes to the courts. So um, all the actors, so from a political perspective, all the actors seem pretty happy to keep things gray and ambiguous. The pathology of this is we fiascos happen. Um, but you know, what's the other side? Where should that line be? Should we strictly interpret the Constitution, as some people do, such that um, the U.S. can't employ military force until there's a war declaration? I think I heard you say, of course not. Um, I'm not sure if I'm wrong, but I think that's what you said. Um, but if it's not that, what do we do? I guess the question, maybe it's a totally unfair question. But, um, no, no question is unfair. Um, If there were a better way of doing it, I'd like to believe that maybe Congress and a president would have come up with it by now. My point here is, is to highlight the fact that there isn't a satisfactory solution at this particular time, and that there ought to be. Now, that there ought to be a satisfactory solution if both sides accept immediately, I don't know. But something that both sides can work with that is more consistent with the position of the United States around the world. And if we are to live in the kind of Tea Party animosity that we have today, uh, where the difficulty of establishing a working relationship between Congress and a president on an issue of such importance as going to war, that is something, in my judgment, that is unacceptable. And there ought to be a way of handling that. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I leave that to scholars. <laughs> but I think on that, that note. On that note. But I, I think journalists can raise the question, right? Absolutely. They must. Marvin, it's a pleasure always to have you. Thank you.